Tonight, we're wrapping up our study on passages that people frequently take out of context. And we're looking at one last passage in James chapter 2, so turn with me there if you want to. But don't think that we're, just because we've finished this series that, that we're, we've covered every passage that people take out of context. Because if people try hard enough, they can pull just about any passage out of context to make it say something that the Bible doesn't say. But we don't want to be like that. We want to know what God actually says. So we study his words and we compare scripture with scripture so we can be sure we know what a particular passage is saying. And hopefully this series has just made you think about that. Maybe you're newer around here and the idea of studying the Bible is kind of new to you. Or maybe you've been around here for a while and studying these passages was able to remind you of some things to reinforce what you're already doing. But at any rate, these Bible studies have been fun for me. I hope they've been fun for you. And tonight, in my opinion, is is no different. So let's read James 2.14. It says, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath, have not works? Can faith save him? So again, like last week, this is, uh-oh, sounds like James is saying that you need more than just faith to get saved. Sounds like you might need to add some works into the mix in order to have salvation. Well, spoiler alert, that's not what it's saying, and we'll see that as we dig in tonight. But before we dive in, I just want to highlight some principles of Bible study that are good to keep in mind for this verse in particular. And when I say principles of Bible study, there's, there's a handful of principles that you'll learn about if and when you take the MTT class that we call How to Study the Bible. They're, they're not like principles like you don't open up to Exodus chapter 21 after the Ten Commandments and find the nine principles of Bible study. Um, they're not something that are just written out in the Bible. They're just some common sense things that we tend to forget when we're studying scripture if we're not careful. And the first one I'd mention here is that we're careful to not base our doctrine, which just means we don't base what we believe, on a question we find in scripture. And that's what we have here in James with, can faith save him? It's a question. Questions aren't always making statements. That's, that's why they're questions. Frequently, it's hard to tell if a written question is rhetorical, sarcastic, exaggerating, or, or it's just a simple question. And for that reason, when we see a question like this in Scripture, we don't immediately take that as a statement unless it's backed up by other passages of Scripture. And with that, the second principle we're going to use tonight is that while we're studying, we need to be careful that we don't violate clear passages of Scripture with the unclear ones. Because if we truly believe that the entire Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover without any sort of error, we do believe that, then we know that the entire thing is somehow going to fit together even if we don't understand it right away. And many places in the Bible are clear that your salvation has everything to do with your faith and nothing to do with your works. One place is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's a clear, precise statement that clears up any misunderstanding of whether or not works have anything to do with your salvation. So when we see in James 2, this question that asks, can faith save him? We know that's not saying that we need anything other than than our faith in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins, we might just have to study a bit to find out what it's really saying. Because we're not sure about what this passage says, that doesn't mean we're going to question, you know, the things that are clear in other parts of the Bible. And that's all that principle really means. And so tonight, we're going to study and and figure out what's going on here in James 2. Uh, So let's dig in with point number one, the audience 
and the message. Like we've done with each passage in this series, we need to make sure we understand who the audience is. Who is this passage written to? Because knowing who a passage was written to can clue you in on some specifics about what's being said and, and why it's being said. Well, James makes his audience pretty clear at the beginning of his book. James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So this entire book of James was written to the twelve tribes. It was written to Israelites. So while you're in James, you need to be careful that you don't pull something out of context that was written to the Jews and think that it was written to the church. Understanding that, there's a lot of good practical points in James that we would be wise to learn from and apply to our lives. And that includes the verse we're looking at tonight. James 2.14 and the surrounding verses give us some very practical applications. The problem happens when we pull them out of context and try to make some pretty big doctrinal statements out of them that are contrary to other parts of Scripture. And we only have to look back a couple of verses before verse 14 to see the context of the message that James is driving at when he gets to verse 14. I'll start reading in verse 10. It says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery... Yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. So James is communicating to the Israelites that keeping the law is not something that's possible. If you offend the law in even one small point, you're guilty of not keeping the law. You're a transgressor of the law. That's God's standard. His standard is perfect holiness. One small transgression is enough to make you fall short of that standard. That's why Romans 23 or 323 says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, because none of us live up to God's standard of perfect holiness. Just one sin, one transgression prevents you from reaching that. Um, so ask yourself, is there anybody in here who's, who's never sinned, never done anything wrong, not one time? I didn't think so. I'm wondering if Tanner would raise his hand in the back. I, <laughs> And then I say, then I pull the dad joke and like, you lied, now you can't raise your hand. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that's true because Romans 3.23 says it's true. Now, this was kind of a new take on the law from what Israel had become accustomed to. And James was just communicating that no amount of animal sacrifices as prescribed by the law would actually ever deal with your sin because just one offense means you're guilty, and if you're guilty, you fall short of God's standard. Remember, the law provided a way for mankind at a time to attain a level of righteousness, but true perfect righteousness that had to come from Jesus. That's why Jesus died on the cross. He had to die as a sacrifice to make a way for human beings to attain that pure righteousness. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as by the, the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, talking about the sin of Adam. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So because of what Jesus did, that's what we get. Verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So Jesus is the only source of true righteousness and holiness. He's the only thing that can fix our problem of falling short of God's holiness. So rather than trusting in the Old Testament law to make them righteous, 
the Jews that James is writing to, along with everyone else, they should be looking to the law of liberty instead. So what's the law of liberty? Well, James had already mentioned that in chapter one. James 1, verses 22 through 25 say, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he shall not, er, and he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So the perfect law of liberty, which you're looking into, that's God's word. That's what you're hearing. That's what you're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. So Jesus offers his righteousness as a free gift to us, but if you want to continue in that righteousness, meaning if you want to live your life in accordance with that righteousness, then you have to know what the Bible says and adjust your life to what it's saying. You have to do the word, not just hear it. That's the general point that James is is trying to make. We see that specifically in James 2. Uh, Drop down a few verses after 14 to 17. It says, Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So after making this series of rhetorical questions, James communicates that faith without works is dead. After talking to the Jews who came out from under the law and have now experienced liberty in Christ that he, offer, that, that he offers to them, James reminds them that good works ought to accompany their faith that they have now. Even, even though they're not bound to the Old Testament law anymore, those good works ought to accompany their faith. This isn't about salvation. This is after salvation. And we can see that clearly if we examine what, what does it mean to be dead? What does it mean when it says faith without works is dead? And this can get tricky if we're not careful because we often think of being dead only as the opposite of being alive. And that's very true in a physical context. That's very true in a spiritual context. We're born spiritually dead, but Jesus gives us spiritual life if we accept him as our Lord and Savior. But you are not the thing that's talking about being dead here in James 2. It's your faith that's dead. And just because something is dead, it doesn't mean that thing doesn't exist. For example, when you die, the Bible tells us that you don't cease to exist. You just go on to the next stage of your existence, and that's either a good thing if you're saved, or it's a very bad thing if you're lost. And the Bible occasionally uses the word dead to describe something that isn't dead in the sense of not being alive. In fact, if you look up the first time the Bible uses the word dead, uh, it's in the book of Genesis when Abraham tells King Abimelech that his wife is his sister because he's worried that if he finds out that Abraham's married to this hot chick, then he's going to kill Abraham so he can get the hot chick. Well, Abraham's like, just tell him you're my sister. That way he won't kill me. Well, Abimelech takes his wife. He's like, well, if you're not married to her, I'm going to marry her. And so he takes her along. And uh, God warns Abimelech not to do that, not to take him as, or not to take her as his wife. Genesis 20, verse 3 says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, thou art but a dead man, for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, we can understand that as God promising to punish Abimelech if he, if he goes forward with this. And 
take Sarah as his wife, he's going to end up dead because Sarah was married to Abraham and that warning from God was fair because Abraham lied to him about who, who she was. But I find it interesting that the first time we see the Bible using the word dead, God is calling a man dead even though he's still alive. And there's another very interesting cross-reference to the word dead in Romans 4. Again, it's talking about Abraham. And if you remember, in the Old Testament, Abraham was promised to be the father of a great nation. But he was old and didn't even have a child yet for that nation to come from. And there, were, there comes a time in everyone's life when their body is no longer capable of reproducing. Both Adam and his wife were past that point. Uh, Romans 4, verses eight, 18 through 21 says, Who against hope believed in hope, talking about Abraham, that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about an hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So Abraham had faith enough to believe what God said about him being a father of many nations. Even though his body was now dead, he didn't consider that. He didn't worry about it. And he didn't consider or worry about the deadness of Sarah's womb. So in this case, dead and deadness are referring to Abraham and Sarah's bodies not being able to have children. So here, the word dead doesn't mean that they weren't alive. It just means they weren't able to have kids. So the word dead in the Bible doesn't always refer to something not existing. It can just refer to something that's not capable of doing anything on its own, not capable of fulfilling its function. But Romans 4 makes it clear that Abraham had faith that God would accomplish what he said he would, namely using their dead bodies to create a child. And Abraham obviously followed up that faith with a work, and that work is just the normal work that two people do when they try to have a child. We won't get into that specifically. But in general, the works with the faith demonstrate the faith for everyone else to see. Your faith is enough to save you. That's what we see repeated throughout Scripture. By itself, but by itself, your faith isn't going to accomplish anything after you're saved. Good works, doing what the Bible says, should become a part of your life so that you can accomplish what God wants you to accomplish. We already looked at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but let's look at that again, and this time we'll drop down one more verse into verse 10. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So our faith results in the free gift of salvation. But along with that, we become God's workmanship. We become new creatures who are created unto good works. So we should be doing them. If we're not doing them, then we're not doing the natural thing uh, for us to be doing. But we can always choose not to do that. This passage in James is just saying to do those good works that we can find in the Bible that God tells us to do. That's all that's going on here. You don't have to do good works to get saved, and you don't have to do good works to stay saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and we're ever reliant on him to keep our sins from affecting our eternal relationship with him. That's the gift he gives us. But with that understanding comes the expectation that we should be doing the word, not just hearing it. The natural result of your faith in God should be good works in your life. 
And James gives us a couple examples of that in this chapter, and that's number two, the examples. And the first example we have is letter A, Abraham. Abraham's coming up a lot tonight. Um, and we see that in James two twenty one through 24. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which, said, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. And this is pointing back to the time when God asked Abraham to offer his only son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. And remember, Isaac was the son that Abraham and Sarah had long after they passed their childbearing years. He was the gift that God gave them that was going to result in Abraham being the father of many nations. He was the child that God promised to him. But before Abraham and Sarah believed what God was going to do, what he said he was going to do, they tried to take matters into their own hands. And Abraham ends up having a son named Ishmael with, with his wife's handmaiden, who was much younger. But God always intended for Isaac to be the one who would be the fulfillment of God's promise to make a great nation out of his family. And let's look in, at this story in Genesis uh, 15, uh, verses 3 through 6, when God is telling Abraham what he's going to do. Verse 3, And Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he shall bring him forth abroad, and said, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and it was counted, and he counted it to him for righteousness. So this is when Abraham finally believed what God was saying to him. He believed God, and God counted, counted it to him for righteousness. That's what James 2 is referring back to when it says, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. But according to James 2, he wasn't justified until after, Isaac his, after he offered Isaac his son on the altar. So this righteousness was imputed unto him before Isaac was even born. But he wasn't justified until over a decade later when he offered up Isaac trusting the Lord and believing that God would do what he said. We see that in Genesis 22, verses 6 through 8. It says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac sp spake unto his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself or, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering, so they went both of them together. Which happens to be one of my favorite sentences in the entire Bible, because it can mean that God will provide a lamb for himself, which he did when he stopped Abraham from killing Isaac and gave them the ram caught in a thicket to offer instead. But that sentence can also mean that God will provide himself as a lamb, which he did when Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, offered himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. And this is the event that James 2 says justified Abraham. And it just so happens to be a very clear picture of Jesus dying for our sins. And that's cool, but that's not, that's the, the picture isn't what justified Abraham. Abraham was justified because he had faith in what God said, and he obeyed it. You and I are justified the same way, by the way. We're just justified 
or we're justified when we believe what God says and we obey it, but what God says to us is different than what he says to Abraham. What he says to us is Romans 10, 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So this is what God says we're to do. Yes, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, but unless you act on that information, you're not justified by it. It doesn't get applied to you. In order to be saved or justified, you have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the grave with power over death and hell because of his sacrifice for you. That's what God tells us we're to do. And if you do that simple thing, you just believe what the Bible says about Jesus' payment for your sins and confess that he's your Lord, you're justified, you're saved. Romans 3.24 says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then Romans 3.28 says, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Jesus made that happen. So we're justified freely by his grace. All we have to do is accept the redemption that is in Christ Jesus without the deeds of the law. There's no need for you to do anything outside of believing and confessing in order to be justified. Romans 5.1 says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So like Moses, do you believe what God is saying to you about how you can be justified? Or like Abraham, I'm sorry. Have you obeyed it? Have you acted on it? Maybe tonight could be that night for you. Maybe that tonight could be the night for you to act on that. But let's look at the other example, and that's letter B, Rahab. And we see that in verses 25 and 26. It says, Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So we don't have time to dig into this story too much, but if you remember the times leading up to the battle of Jericho, shortly uh, after Moses dies and Joshua takes over, leading the nation of Israel uh, to the promised land, Joshua sends some spies into Jericho to get the lay of the land. And this harlot named Rahab hides them from the men of the city so that they don't get found out. She did that because she had heard some of the amazing things that God had been doing to protect Israel, and it scared her that he was going to do those same things there because God didn't deal well with people who, who were up against Israel. You can see that in Joshua 2, verses 9 through 12. But not only did she hear what God had done for them, she also believed it, and that knowledge scared her enough to realize that God was going to take down Jericho for the nation of Israel. So she offers to help them in exchange for their protection when the inevitable battle would happen. So she hides them and helps them escape the city so that they could report back to Joshua. And because she did that, we can see the results in Joshua chapter 6. Verse 25 says, And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive in her father's household and all that she had. And she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Because she hid the messengers, she got saved from the destruction of Jericho. Because she acted on her belief that God was going to conquer the land for Israel, she was saved from the destruction that befell the city. Hebrews 11.31 mentions her too. It says, By faith the harlot Rahab perished, not with them that believed not, when she had received the spies with peace. So like Moses, and like you and I, Rahab had to act on her belief. Would she have been protected if she only believed in God's power to take down Jericho? No, 
She had to act on that information, and protecting the messengers is what saved her from that. So it's not enough to just believe in God's power. It's not enough to believe in Jesus' sacrifice. You have to accept it for yourself. You have to act on that information the way Romans 10 tells us to, by confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. James 2.9 says, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. So believing in God, that doesn't make you any different from a devil. But obeying what God says and telling them that he's the Lord of your life, man, that will justify you. That will save you from eternal separation from him because the Bible says it will. And finally, let's talk about number three, the practical takeaway. And this is an important one to consider. Because like I said, the Bible's clear that good works have nothing to do with our salvation. All we have to do is believe what God says and act on it. And, and right now, he says we're, we're saved by grace through faith alone, without works. There were other times in history where that wasn't the case, though. There were times like with Abraham and Rahab, where, God, where what God said to them involved other actions. And those works would have been required for them to be justified, but that's not the case for us today. But there's still a lot for us to learn here. Remember, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all scripture is inspired by God? Do you believe that all scripture is profitable for us? Because God says it is. So even though the works of the law aren't required for us to be saved today, the law, that first chunk of your Bible, is scripture, and it's still profitable for us. Paul makes that clear. Romans 7, 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. We, w- we wouldn't know what behaviors God considers to be sin unless he told us in the law. We don't have to wonder whether or not lying is wrong. God told us we shouldn't lie. We don't have to wonder whether or not murder is wrong. God told us it is. So the law actually tells us in writing which behaviors God explicitly considers to be sinful. But in doing that, it also points out our need for a Savior. Galatians 3, 22 says, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God in faith, in, or by faith in Christ Jesus. So the law lets us know that we're all under sin. Like James mentioned earlier, you offend the law in one point, you're guilty of all. One small sin is all it takes to set yourself lower than the standard of righteousness that God sets up for us. That's why scripture concludes all are under sin. So first of all, keep, it, keep that in mind the next time you see someone dealing with sin. Be careful not to forget that you're also guilty of sin and without Christ, you'd be completely helpless in dealing with it just like they are. Too often we Christians get on our high horse and we look down on people who aren't as far along in their walk with God as we are. Don't be that guy. The law can help remind you of that. But the law can also help you reach lost people with the gospel because a lost person can understand before they can understand the gospel, they need to understand that they're lost. They need to understand that they need a savior. 
First Timothy 1, 8 through 11 says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars. So that's a pretty bad list, and liars just gets chucked right in the middle there. For liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. That's one of the big purposes of the law. It points out fault in people. It shows them their sin. It convicts them of it. Because until a person recognizes they're a sinner separated from God by their sin, they won't understand their need for Jesus' sacrifice. But once you're saved, man, you, can, you can't trust in the law or in your own works to maintain your relationship with Christ. You have to continue to trust his sacrifice because we still deal with sin after we're saved. And he's still the only one who can properly deal with that sin in your life. So we have to let him do that. God's not interested in robots who follow a set of rules. He wants a relationship with each and every one of us. And because of that, he offers us liberty. He gives us choice in how we live our life. He frees us from having to follow a set of rules. And instead, he gives us his Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we have liberty in Christ that we can enjoy because of Jesus already paying for our sins. Now that's not a license to just do whatever we want. We need to make sure we use our liberty wisely. And that's the point James is making uh, in James chapter two. And that's something that we can all certainly apply to us. James 1.22 says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. We need to do the word, not just hear it. We can't hear instructions from God's word and just ignore them, continue living our lives the way we want to. If we want to be like Christ, we have to adjust our lives so that they line up with what the Bible says. That's the only way God's going to be able to effectively use you in this life. And that's the only thing that can, and the only thing that can stand in the way of that is you and your choice in how you're dealing, or how you're living your life. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 9. It says, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Because each one of us needs to make sure we don't use our liberty to become a stumbling block for someone else. You don't want to do something that makes a brother or sister in Christ strumble, stum- strumble, yeah. stumble in their own relationship with God. And you don't want to do anything that might prevent a lost person from understanding or believing the gospel. So you've got to watch out how you use that liberty. It's not just this free pass where you get to do anything you want. God tells us to be very careful about how we live our lives and live them according to his word. I put the big takeaway on your sheet this way. Use your liberty to demonstrate your relationship with God by living your life the way he tells us to in the Bible. If you can do that, then God can really start to use you to do some cool stuff, like building up your brothers and sisters in Christ, like reaching the lost people around you with the gospel. The principle's simple. In order for your faith to accomplish anything of of value, you have to back it up with the works the Bible describes. Otherwise, your faith is dead. It's just sort of lying there on the ground, not helping anybody or getting anything done. And we don't want that to be true of us. And as we wrap up, man, just keep in mind the things that we talked about at the very beginning. Don't get confused about what the Bible clearly communicates when you get to a passage that seems a little weird, like like this verse in James. 
if we truly believe that all scripture is given by inspiration from God, if we truly believe that we hold the pure words of God in our hands, then we know every word in the Bible is true. And if we're willing to do some work and study, like 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us to, then we can start to see how the entire Bible, including these strange passages, fit together. And that's been the main point throughout this entire series. Understanding the Bible in context has never been about knowing everything in the Bible. Understanding the Bible in context is all about having faith that what the Bible says is true 100% of the time. We just have to do some studying sometimes to understand how the various pieces fit together. And that's what we need to do if we want to hear what God says. But practically speaking, what is it you need to do rather than just hear? Do you need to get saved? We've talked about how easy that is. You don't have to sacrifice an animal or follow a strict set of rules. You just have to understand that you're a sinner and that Jesus paid or died to pay for that sin so that you don't have to. And then confess that he's your Lord, the rightful ruler of your life because of that price he's paid for you. If you've got questions about that, man, talk to somebody before you leave. But if you're saved, what is it that you need to do? Because we study the Bible week in and week out here. Hopefully, you're spending time in his word on your own every single day. What are the things that God's asking you to do? How is he asking you to change your life so that you're more conformed to Jesus Christ? It's not enough to just know that stuff. We have to do that stuff if we want to effectively serve him. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for, man, just the trust that we can have in your word because you tell us your words are pure. You tell us they're inspired. You tell us they're preserved. And man, we thank you for that. We thank you that, that we can be confident that we hold your words in our hand. But God, I pray that we would take them seriously. I pray that we'd take the truth that we read in your word seriously and that we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but Lord, that we'd do it. That we'd just buck up and, and shape our lives and point them in the direction that, that you want them pointed in so that we can look more and more like Jesus so you can use us to reach this world more and more. And God, I thank you so much again for the confidence that we can have in just our own salvation and that, man, you died to make a way for us to have sin totally separate from works and totally in, in spite of works, Lord. No work that we do can ever justify us before you, but, but Jesus did, and, and so we thank you for that. But God, I pray that we wouldn't take that as a license to just live our lives the way that we would want, Lord. I pray that we would, man, appreciate that sacrifice enough that we would sacrifice our own desires to serve you and to follow you the way you would have us go. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.